Um, today, we are going to be getting into a topic that you have the privilege of seeing me preach for the first time ever since being ordained into ministry in 2006 and being heavily involved in youth ministry and stuff like that before then. Um, it's a topic that is controversial and, uh, you know, is not popular, but it is in the Bible, and it is my persuasion that we as his people need to understand the reality of the wrath of God and eternal hell, coupled with eternal salvation and the love of God in the gospel. Uh, and so, as I just prayed, I'm praying that despite the fact that many, even in the church, have written this off as fable, we would see the reality of it because if indeed it is true, and if you believe the scripture, there's no way around it, it is a reality, his people need to see it and know it so that we can respond accordingly. And so what we're going to look at, number one, is hell is awful banishment from heaven. Door shut, entry no longer, banished. Hell is eternal, and hell specifically is the punishment for sin. Hell is demanded by God's righteousness and justice. And it is wonderful that God has provided an offer of salvation. And to respond to that offer... We need to repent, believe, and respond to his commission in this earth. So let's look at uh, this kind of first idea. Hell is awful banishment from heaven. Matthew 8, verse 11. I just want to, we're going to look at a lot of scripture. And when I tackle a subject that is controversial or difficult, uh, my go-to is just to laden the message with a whole bunch of scripture. It's almost like I'm just reading scripture to us today and pointing out what is the obvious. Hell is awful banishment from heaven. These are Jesus' words. Not that Paul's words aren't important or Peter or James or Jeremiah, but Jesus is the word. And Jesus in Matthew 8, 11, says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I just want to point out what Jesus is describing. First of all, he's clearly saying that there is a hell here, and he describes it in a way of outer darkness, which means that there's no light in this place. There's no light. There's no, you know, last night our power went out, and there was, for a time, no light. And uh, at least we had candles. And there's something about the warm glow of a candle that's actually cozy and wonderful. This place doesn't have such a reprieve. No light, no joy, darkness groping, and in addition to that, we see that there's weeping. It's a place of tears and crying, and it's a place of gnashing of teeth. And because I know we don't speak that way, you know, we often don't use that expression. Let me just say what gnashing of teeth is. If you've ever uh, maybe stubbed your toe on a, on a coffee table in the dark, 
uh, and oh, that is gnashing of teeth. It's, it's pain and clenching your teeth in, in, in anguish is the idea. That's, that's what Jesus is saying hell is. Luke 13, 28, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. And so we know from the last verse that hell is awful. Outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, that's all it is. But here we see Jesus saying the same thing and saying yourselves thrust out. And multiple times throughout the Gospels, this pattern uh, in various parables where Jesus references hell, this pattern of thought is, is repeated that hell, there's something about the door shutting and those coming and wanting to come and find entrance but no longer being able to. The time has elapsed. The time is, is, is no longer where anything can be kind of negotiated. They're, you're shut out and, and, and banished into this awful situation. And secondly, we know that hell, from Jesus' words, is eternal. Now, I don't mean to poo-poo other faiths and other traditions of which I myself was raised in a particular faith tradition that believed in what, what we knew as purgatory. Purgatory being an intermediate stage where because you're not worthy of going into heaven, you're kind of punished in a sense in a temporary realm so that you can be made purified and ready for heaven. And with all due respect, nowhere in the New Testament is any such notion even suggested. Jesus' own word says hell is eternal. And I just want us to let that reality sink in. Ongoing. Jesus says, Matthew 25, 46, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That word punishment means punishment. It can also mean torment. And he says it's not just punishment. It's not just torment. It's everlasting punishment. The idea, uh, the, the original Greek word, kind of expounded in Strong's concordance in this way. It would mean without beginning and end, that which always has been and always will be. That is hell. Darkness, weeping, pain, and it does not stop. Again, not my words, Jesus' words. Hell is punishment for sin. And now, understanding this, we begin to move towards understanding the reality of what Jesus did and what he has rescued us from. Hell is punishment for sin. Please open your hearts to hear these words. Matthew 5.29, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. We see clearly Jesus identifying that hell is the result of sin. And he is metaphorically speaking, he's not saying that it is possible that, for example, your right eye would actually be the sole source of sin in your body. That would be ridiculous, right? He's metaphorically saying that if 
that was what causes you to sin, you should pluck it out. In other words, spare no expense and, and, and suffer any pain necessary because Jesus is saying, I guarantee you whatever pain you may experience from physically removing your eye would be better because that eye alone would perish, but your whole body could be saved. Why? Because sin is the reason for hell. Hell is punishment for sin. If I can take us to Galatians 5 as well as Ephesians 5. And I want to read a couple verses to, uh, this, these are the words of the Apostle Paul. And this is going to uh, expound on this notion. And if you would, we're going to read verse 21 first. And then we're going to go back and read from Galatians 5 verses 19 through 21. You'll understand in a minute. Look with me first in verse 21 of Galatians 5. Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like... Can anybody ad identify what those things collectively would be called? Sin and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And having read that, let's go back and say, well, <laughs> let's find out what things are we talking about now? Let's go back to Galatians 5.19, two verses up. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery. I don't know if some of us in the room squirm right now. Others are probably like, adultery, never committed adultery. That's good. Let's go on to the next one. Fornication. That would literally mean any kind of sexual immorality. Oh, oh no. Uncleanness. That would not mean you didn't take a bath last night. That means any kind of spiritual uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry. Most of us aren't knowingly worshiping idols. Sorcery, listen to this, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, which means breaking the unity, heresies, envy, Mur envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you, Paul says, beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Are you starting to get this? Hell is punishment for sin. If you go to Ephesians 5 and read uh, verses 5 and 6 with me, Paul, the same author as Galatians, writes these words to the Ephesians. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater. Isn't that interesting? You thought, I, didn't, I don't practice idolatry. Well, if you covet what's another person, you are practicing idolatry. Who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And he goes on to say, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is a problem. Would you agree? And I want to take us to a picture in the end from the book of Revelation. John the Apostle, 
on the Isle of Patmos, as many of you know, has this amazing revelation, an epiphany, an encounter, a prophetic encounter, seeing things, some of which perhaps have already come to pass, many of which have certainly not yet come to pass. And in in Revelation chapter 20, we are seeing what is yet to come, which is a day after Jesus returns And he will judge, according to the scriptures, the living and the dead. And this is what John sees of such a day. The day of judgment, Jesus himself. You thought, I love Jesus, 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 meek and mild. Yes, he is meek and mild. But let's also see this aspect of of Jesus in Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. So there are apparently books at this moment of the, of the final judgment. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. There's one particular book that seems to stand out from the rest and have utter importance. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Can I ask all of us just to take pause right now and to know that all of us will one day stand before Jesus and stand before his judgment. And let's read what happens in this moment because I want to suggest to us that if these things are true, every single moment and second of our life is going to find its purpose and meaning and value in this moment that we are reading about right now. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works, and then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. We love that. Death and Hades. We don't mind seeing them cast into this horrible place, the lake of fire. Death and Hades, that's, that's good. They're bad and we don't want them and they need to be punished. This is the second death. But listen to, in verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Very simply, guys, we don't want anyone in this room to ever know what that is. Because once you do know what it is, there's no turning back. And we don't want anyone to know what that is. And did you know that God has the same feeling and desire? And it is that feeling and desire for which he became one of us and did what he did through Jesus. If you skip with me to the next chapter, verses uh, chapter 21, John's still talking about kind of this scene. In verse 5, Revelation 21, it says, Then he, Jesus who sat on the throne, said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, speaking to John, Write, why? For these words are true and faithful. Now it's not to say that words from Exodus or Deuteronomy or Job or the Psalms or Matthew, Mark, Luke or John or any other book in the Bible are not important. But when Jesus says, write, because these words that I'm about to tell you, these are true and faithful. He's putting emphasis to say, put your life on what I'm about to say. So what did he say next? And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
I will give to the fountain of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. Throughout this world right now, many are living in prosperity, are living in comfort, are enjoying something of life, and that very ease of life is causing there to be a lack of spiritual thirst. I want to say to us the struggles and trials that we are encountering in this life are actually the opportunity to become the reason for our thirst. And Jesus pours out to those who are thirsty, which is to suggest, correct me if I'm wrong, that you do not get the water of life freely if you're not thirsting. Trials and tribulations in this world work the willingness to repent. That's what it is to thirst. That's the proof of thirst. That I'm willing to turn from my control of my life and Jesus, I need your help. I need you. That's who receives, but we're not done. Let's continue on with what Jesus says with these true and faithful words. Verse 7, he who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's not only death and Hades that are tossed into this lake of fire. It is all who participate in sin. That's a problem, right? God's righteousness and justice demand punishment for sin. He is not righteous, nor is he just, if sin comes in and messes up and fouls up his perfect creation and he does nothing about it. And, and his justice demands punishment and banishment from heaven. Now you may remember in the Genesis, the first few chapters, we've got this wonderful, perfect creation. The perfect alignment of the kingdom of God, the spiritual realm of the kingdom of God, and the physically created space. This is why in Genesis chapter 1, every day that is completed, when God looks at it, he says it is. And then he creates mankind on day 6. And at the end of day 6, he not only says that it's good, he says it is very good. I am fully satisfied. This would suggest that the scope and the landscape of, of all that he had created was perfection. Harmony with his own perfect self. And he said to the apex of his creation, mankind, you may eat from all of the trees in the garden freely, but from that one tree, what tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And of course, as we know, the serpent came to Eve and, and, and kind of tempted Eve to take a bite. She saw 
that it was good. She saw that there were qualities about it and laced into his lies was the idea that God had been trying to suppress Adam and Eve and that his reason for telling them not to eat from that particular tree was because he didn't want them to go up and to become on par with himself. The reason I'm pointing that out is because that is the nature of sin. That's the, all sin stems from unbelief. And unbelief simply is saying we don't need God. And so the, 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 the failure there was Eve eats of the fruit. She then gives to her uh, Adam. Adam who was put in like leadership of this place. So he's the one who, who carries the responsibility. He takes a bite. They are both equally guilty. And then in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, we find this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. I want to point something out there. Before they took a bite of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it would suppose that Adam and Eve did not know good and evil. Well, that's interesting. Like, how did they not know good? I mean, they knew... They, they, everything was perfect because good, the good of the fruit of the, of the tree of the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is not what they knew, which was God. It is what, what the knowledge of good and evil actually is, is the law. That literally is what it is. That's what law is. It's knowing good and evil, which will never make us right. In fact, that's the very reason that God gave the, the Israelites the law to give a season of time where we would realize there's no way to fulfill God's standard on our own. And so mankind knew good and evil. Adam and Eve didn't know even a concept of evil prior to this point. All they knew was harmony with God. All they knew was perfection and the life of God and the wonder and beauty and glory of his majesty. That's all they knew. And now they know, oh, you, I could lie. Oh, I could cheat on my wife. Oh, I, I, they knew evil along with the good. Are you following? And it says, and now... Unless he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life, which is speaking of the spirit, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim, which is kind of like angels, at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What we are very simply seeing here is that God's righteousness. Now, we know God loved Adam and Eve. He was, he was the word very good that he expressed there would suggest that he was like exuberantly happy. He loved Adam and Eve. This is not like, oh, I don't care about Adam and Eve. I'm just going to banish them. No, this broke the Father God's heart. However, his righteousness and holiness could not abide sin. I think we have heard so much of a watered-down gospel that we have in the church become comfortable and familiar and lost a sense of the fear of God with relationship to sin. 
Now, let me make it very clear. If we have become new creations through faith in Christ, we do not need to keep on worrying, have we lost our salvation? (laughs) Because if you start thinking that way, I can assure you, you aren't worthy of your salvation. And Jesus has finished the work. We're not talking about, am I saved? I I sinned? Have I lost my salvation? That's not what we're talking about. But we are wanting to understand sin from God's perspective. This isn't like a casual thing. His righteousness, just bear in mind, God is righteous and he is holy. And therefore, if that's true, he cannot have in his kingdom unrighteousness. And if there is unrighteousness, it must be put out. The problem is, mankind became the household of the unrighteousness. And to put out the unrighteousness means to put out mankind. So God's righteousness and holiness could not abide sin. Banishment from eternal life has therefore been the condition of all mankind since sin entered the picture. That is the idea of Genesis chapter 3, what we just read. It's from that moment, not just Adam and Eve, all of their posterity all have been born into sin and born with a, this cherubim guarding the way from the tree of life, not having access anymore to the spirit of life in God. Make sense? That is the condition of all mankind. And if we know that hell is what it is, that we've already looked at, that is the destination of all mankind. Romans, uh, you say, how do I I know that? Well, listen to Jesus' own words. John chapter 3, verse 18. Man, we're so familiar with John 3, 16. Well, let's read John 3, 18. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We're born condemned because we're born with sin. My friends, that is a big problem. And I'm concerned that we as the church do not discuss this and actually process it. Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Hell is the punishment for what? And who has sinned? All have sinned. Big problem. God has provided an offer of salvation. Let's read that same passage of scripture again. Romans 3 starting in 21. And read through 26. You guys having fun? (laughs) here's the good news yeah Uh, and I'm fully aware that this is weighted I'm fully aware that it's uncomfortable and I actually wanted to say I meant to say at the beginning that I that I believe that some damage has been done in the church on the other side of the spectrum I think some people that some of which I even know have been hurt by an overemphasis on the fear of hell and a, almost a uh, preoccupation with hell and fire and brimstone. And at the expense of actually giving us a picture of the love of God. And I want to say this from the depths of my heart. The reason that I feel like one of the main reasons that we want to look at this today is because I don't think that we can understand in full scope the love of God in Christ Jesus without understanding the wrath of God and hell. So having said that, let's look at Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Listen to this. 
But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, remember that knowledge of tree, tree of good and evil? The law? Now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets, which would mean the, the Old Testament, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. What we just read is suggesting that God made a way for us, even though we have sin and that sin banishes us from heaven, sends us to hell necessarily for him to truly be just a just and righteous and holy God, it necessarily means that we can have no inheritance in his kingdom. He has made a way for there to be righteousness proclaimed upon people. How? Through faith in Jesus. For there is no difference. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace, I want you to hear that word, being justified. What is the word justified? Justified means to make just, to make something that is otherwise not, not righteous as though it were just. We good? Being justified freely, freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. I know we don't use that word a lot. That means like the scapegoat. That means the atoning victim. That means God sent Jesus to be, because the wrath of God and the punishment of God has to be poured out on sin, God sent his own son and had his son place upon himself or have the wrath of God poured out upon him, his son as the propitiation that he would experience the wrath and that anyone who wants to receive the salvation that that has paid the price for simply believes. Now we're going to talk about what believe actually means in just a second. But God is set forth as a propitiation by his blood. How thankful are you for his blood the spilled blood of the Son of God himself through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time, this is God's message to us, his righteousness that he may be just. What's the issue? That God cannot be just and tolerate sin, right? We've already seen that. He can't be righteous and abide sin in his kingdom, but in this plan that he has come up with, he might be just on the one hand and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is able to hold both intention, that he doesn't forsake his justice and righteousness, and yet he himself becomes the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul says it elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5.21, perhaps one of my very favorite scriptures in all of the Bible, for he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
That is the gospel, my friends. That the wrath of God is the destination of all of mankind. And God has sent his son to take on that punishment that anyone who puts their faith in the one who bore that punishment would not perish but have eternal life. And it's not fair. Not one person who inherits eternal life does so on their own merit. We are all guilty. And it's his blood that alone is the reason that we are able to come into this relationship and receive once again the spirit of life into us from now and into forevermore. I want to declare this morning, what we're talking about is not simply doctrine. This is not just a religion. I don't even know that stuff. I met some dude today, this week. He was a lovely man, but he found out I'm a pastor, and immediately he goes to, sem- goes to a conversation about seminary and training and all this stuff, and I'm like, bro, that's, <laughs> uh, you know, that's, that's not really the path I, I've gone on. I'm a part of this other, and, and, and he loved it. He totally dug it, but what I'm saying is he was talking religious talk about all the professional, no, 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 here's, here's, my, here's what my story is. Jesus came when I repented at the age of 18 and gave my life to him. He came and dwelt inside of me. That is not a theory or a doctrine. That's my story. That's, that is testifiably true. Those who knew me before can testify equally before you. Paul is not the same dude. Being born again is a reality, and uh, Paul in Ephesians 1 describes it this way, as the Spirit is given. Remember what what were we cut off from as a result of the fall? The tree of life, and that speaks of the Spirit. And Paul in Ephesians 1 says that he has given us the Spirit as an earnest deposit. For those of us who are involved in real estate, we know exactly what that means. It means you're putting, you're not, that's not the full purchase, but you're putting something down in the meantime to guarantee that you really are going to do this. And when I got born again, I received the Spirit. I still have a sin nature. There's going to come a day where Jesus comes and I am, this body that you see now is going to be replaced, the scripture says, with an immortal, uncorruptible body. Uh, it, it will go on into heaven and my spirit and my body will be in a full alignment with heaven. And anyone in this room who's born again is going to experience the same thing. But in this world that's fallen with sin, we are allowed to move into the sin-laden world still having ourselves a sin nature. But we have the spirit of God, an earnest deposit guaranteeing that we have been purchased by God. And one day we will be with him forever in heaven. And until that time, heaven is already inside of us. And our mission, just like Jesus's, was to release the atmosphere and the reality and the presence of heaven into this earth. So two things I want to state from what we just looked at. Only in understanding the wrath of God can we fully perceive the love of God in Jesus. Yeah. You know, there's a book that came out that that says uh, love wins. And I don't want to have a go. I'm not trying to, like, put other people down. But I'm just saying, like, humbly saying, unbiblical. 
Love wins, the idea that every single human is saved because of what Jesus did. That is unbiblical. And I don't want to just be hard. I'm, I'm trying to be biblical so that we can know the truth, so that we can receive what Jesus has paid for. If we think that love wins and that every single human is saved because of what Jesus did, then a whole, if everybody believes that, a whole lot of people are not going to get saved. It's those who believe. It's those who thirst. Remember that, what I said earlier? And what is thirst? Thirst is the knowledge, I need you. I want to tell you the pride, the sinful pride in our hearts will come up with all sorts. It's a little attorney rattling off all the reasons of why I do not need to repent and place my faith in Jesus. And we can listen to that attorney who makes powerful arguments inside of our head. But we need to know this morning to what ultimate price does that attorney's words have an effect on our lives? Number two, only in understanding the effects of sin, which is hell, can we understand repentance and belief in Jesus. So this morning, I think that there, there's, a, there's a simple three, three responses that, that are appropriate. In a sense, no matter if we are already believers or not, if we are already had that experience of rebirth, I think there's always an opportunity for to repent and to believe. And the reason is because if you have truly repented, I remember, like it was yesterday, on my bed, age of 18, repenting. And I was trying to uh, go through all of the sins, you know, that I could think of. And then I realized... That's not really the issue. I mean, it is important. If there's a, a sin in my life that I know is there, I need to repent. But it's, it's repenting of sin. It's making a decision. I am turning from that thing that would otherwise be sending me to hell. And all and every one of its various forms. I am turning from it. This is not about negotiating a deal and kind of how can we blur the lines and kind of squeeze our way in and get kind of not give him everything but, but, but kind of still get saved. Repentance means to die. And the kind of the idea is this. All of us are going to die no matter what. I don't mean die as in our physical body. I mean there's either going to be an eternal damnation a, a, an eternal death, or we can die to self in receiving Jesus, which means giving him our whole life. It's not some, it's not kind of trying to make Jesus more a part of my life. It is you die. Jesus becomes your life. That's the threshold you cross over to receive the salvation that Jesus and God has given us. I set before you this day, life and death. The, the, the humanity has these options. If you're going to receive life, it means you've got to die. But let me assure you, the death that we die is, is a speck in the spectrum of eternity compared to what we experience even now on this earth in terms of the relationship that we have with God. However, if we choose death, which is to put off the gospel, to reject the gospel, not so much. 
That's a serious problem. So it's repent, it's believe, and I would say to us Christians in this room, it's to go. If we truly receive the things that we've just heard of from the scripture, there is a world out there. Not, they, they don't need to necessarily only be motivated by fire and brimstone. If necessary, sure, great. But there nonetheless is a world out there. And the, and the Father has paid every single bit of expense that he can so that they would have the opportunity to be saved. And the only way that they can be saved is if the church does something about it. Now we might understand the role of food and faith a little bit more. It's not a cute little program. It is our putting something together for God to use so that people can become born again and saved and eternally with the Father. 